0: When a Chicago food writer decided to move his family to rural France, he couldn't imagine how much their lives would change.
1: We, as a family, had to learn quickly how to slow things down, kind of press pause, take more time with everything, uh, but especially cooking.
0: Coming up, David Bakkenich tells us how in Gascony, eating what makes you happy produces the longest life expectancy rates in all of France. In Italy, the challenge for visitors is learning to have fun with all the things that are different from back home.
2: You have to be able to accept nuances and gray areas, and there is not a black or white answer to everything. Italians are very good at
3: improvising solutions to problems.
0: Do like the locals. Take an evening stroll with your friends.
3: It can be to have a coffee, to have an aperitivo. Ultimately, it's just walk for the sake of it.
0: A first-timer's guide to Italy and duck season in Gascony. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. David Mackinage takes his work as a food writer seriously, so much so that he convinced his wife and daughter to move from Chicago to a small town in France for the better part of a year. That was just so they could get acquainted with the way people eat and live in Gascony. It's one of the least touristy regions of France with a reputation for tasty food cooked in a lot of duck fat we'll hear how living in Gascony changed the way they live and eat in just a bit. When Americans visit Italy for the first time, they often find a few things take a little getting used to. Italians are used to rubbing elbows, so it can feel a little crowded sometimes. Nina Bernardo and Susanna Parrochini are tour guides from Rome who specialize in showing Americans around Italy. They're here to take your calls at 877-333-7425 to get you ready to enjoy Italy and to overcome any potential cultural barriers that might keep you from truly enjoying what Italy has to offer. Susanna and Nina, thanks for being here.
3: Thanks. Hello, everybody.
0: Italy is a challenge, and I think that's why I love it so much, but many people don't like it. We love it. What's your first number one tip for enjoying Italy, Susanna?
3: Well, first of all, I would say you have to change, absolutely. on uh, Possibly f- before, but if you're on a long plane, and uh, you have a few hours, think about changing your ideas on uh, public and private space. So in Italy, we are a lot of people, you know, in Rome, big cities, crowded, Milan, so you need to adjust to our space, uh, which is not the American space. So
0: you're closer together, physically. Oh,
3: yes, yeah, much more. On a bus? On a bus, uh, even waiting for something or, you know, doing the passeggiata, the walk. Yeah. Uh, so people are more used to be rubbing elbows. uh, There's
0: even a a word for that on the passeggiata in Rome. It's called The the big rubbing, right?
3: Yes, the big rubbing. Everybody's out rubbing. Yes, (laughs) and actually, lo struscio, as we say, it's a word that we use also because you want people to look at you and to see how good and... uh, Pay attention. Don't you appreciate me? Come on, I'll rub you again if you don't wake up. Well, there are some rubbing that they can (laughs) get on my nerves, but it's it's fine.
0: (laughs) Everybody's out showing off. Nina, what's another tip for But this enjoying-
2: brings me to my tip, I think, which is that you have to be able to accept nuances and gray areas and things are not black and white and there's not a black or white answer to everything. Italians are very good at improvising solutions to problems. Whereas I think North Americans maybe tend to see a right and a wrong all the time. So this constant rubbing all the time might get on your nerves or we might consider excessive. But in their culture, it's not considered to be offensive. And
0: in Italy, I mean, we just say chaos. In Italy, they're often saying bella chaos.
2: Right. I mean, you don't want Italy to be Switzerland. You sure don't. It would be a bit boring. It would be
0: boring. (laughs) So and along with all that chaos comes a little serendipity. And I find, if you're a traveler, if something opens up, if an opportunity opens up, you say yes.
2: You can have the best experiences that way.
0: Yeah. You, you just can't schedule everything. You, you set out and have an adventure every morning.
3: Yeah, you go with the flow. You know, I think it's good to come to Italy or to any travel uh, having very good ideas, but then you have to let go.
0: Now, the flip side of that is the reality. Americans have the shortest vacations in the rich world. Oftentimes we just have two days for Rome and we want to see so much. I mean, there's so much of the classical city and there's so much of the Vatican. We want to see the Colosseum, the Forum, the Pantheon, St. Peter's Basilica, the Pietà, the Sistine Chapel, and the Vatican Museum. Well, if you're going to do that efficiently, you got to remember everybody else wants to see that also. Frankly, it's quite a problem these days. If you get off a cruise ship without reservations, you're likely to just be bumping into closed doors the whole time. You won't get in to see this stuff. Nina, how do you manage the crowds if you're a tourist with a, a short time frame?
2: I would say the first thing is really decide what your top priorities are. And when you do, make sure you have a reservation to see those and know that you will, you will have them taken off your list. But I really say to uh, travelers, see less and appreciate more because you will have a better memory of your experience.
0: And something I've just stumbled onto lately as a philosophy of travel, every, everybody's looking to me for budget tips, well, the Colosseum's going to cost the same, regardless of how good you are as a budget traveler. But if you know more about it, if you bring an understanding to it, you will enjoy it twice as much. Absolutely. Making will. it a better value. Oh, Absolutely yes. you will. So sure. you're going to Rome. Man, you, you should really do a little preparation because it's an amazing layer cake of history. I mean, you stand... Susanna, when you stand on Largo, Argentina, it's a big open excavation site surrounded yes. by traffic in the heart of Rome. What do you see when you look down at Piazza Argentina?
3: Personally, I'm a big fan of Largo Argentina because uh, I don't know if our people do know that there is a cat sanctuary. So it's really interesting that these fabulous cats, very kind of fatty cats, they can live among the best ruins of Republican temples. So the cats
0: are all down there. It's closed off to people. It's a cat, um, sort of a hospice. Yes. And what do you see from an ancient Rome point of view?
3: Well, I see that every single inch of space uh, is going to be used or reused, recycled for something else. And that is the continuity of the city. So from a temple into something else that can be, why not, a cat sanctuary, for example. I love it.
0: Nina, aren't some of the oldest ruins in all of Rome right down there? in in Largo, Argentina.
2: In Largo, Argentina, yes, absolutely. And there's an author who describes history in Rome as an everlasting present, which I think is a beautiful way to describe history there and really brings to the forefront this idea of this continuity.
0: Growing up in Cleveland, Nina Bernardo's grandparents had lots of stories about life back in the old country. These stories inspired her to move to Italy, where she now guides visitors from her base in Rome. Susanna Paracani was born in Padua, makes her home also in Rome. They're here on Travel with Rick Steves to help you get ready to visit Italy, especially if it's your first time. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Patty's on the line from Coral Springs, Florida. Hi, Patty. How can we help?
4: My daughter is going for the first time on a college abroad trip. She's 20 years old. And I was wondering, you know, they're going to hit the major sites in Rome with their professor, but I was wondering if you can suggest some off-the-beaten-path things um, that she should see as a not-to-miss adventure while she's in Rome, because she has a lot of free time to go to places.
0: Now, is she on a foreign study program in Rome?
4: She's actually going on a college study program, so the professors take her there, yes.
0: Okay, because when you're a foreign study student anywhere in Europe, I understand you get Friday off, so you got three-day weekends. Yes, yeah,
4: they have at least three days, and it's like for the length of six weeks, plus then they have some, you know, afternoons where classes...
0: Oh man. Short
4: and making. Yeah, it's a lot of time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, uh what what is some if you had a student studying in Rome and they had a couple of days, what, what would be an adventure that you'd recommend, Nina?
2: Ooh, an adventure they should probably go out to Ostia Antica. So they could take uh the B line, the metro line B to Piramide, change to a train, take a 30-minute train ride out to the ruins of the old port of Rome, and it's not going to be crowded, so it's like seeing Pompeii but not really.
0: Because if you're in Rome and you have limited time whether you're a student or not, Pompeii is three hours south, whereas Ostia is just a half an hour south. Exactly. a lot of people find Ostia just as enjoyable as Pompeii.
2: Right, and without the crowds.
0: Ostia was the port of ancient Rome.
2: Ostia was the port of ancient Rome, and so it's got a lot of uh, public buildings, and it's got a lot of uh, apartment buildings, so you see a different slice of
0: life. Susanna.
3: Well, actually, if she wants to stay in the city, there's a lot of things that she can do, apart from the museum that we have a lot. Also, churches, they have a particular importance. So, okay, uh,
0: but I'm a teenager. I don't want a church. Right. I don't all want right. a museum. I don't want an ancient site. I want a drink. Where am I going to go?
3: <laughs> well, uh, for a drink, I would say in a hip. Part of town are there that kind can... of
0: clubs little little where tourists yeah, could be comfortable?
3: Well, I, I would say that the, probably young people, they, there are several parts of Rome that they are kind of uh, interesting, but also Testaccio. Testaccio is one of the yeah. old parts of, of Rome that I like because has a very deep sense of uh, uh, the neighborhood. Testaccio.
0: Testaccio. Testaccio.
3: Testaccio.
0: Testaccio. It, it was the ancient um, warehouse district of Rome when there was a million people. In ancient Rome, there's a literal mountain Built with broken amphorae, right? Yes, absolutely. Jugs, yes. When they would, oh, all okay. the shippers would come and. And, and that's
2: where all the cheesy discotecas were built into the side of this
0: mountain. Yes. So if she's
2: 20 years old and she wants to hang out with the cheesiest Romans around <laughs> and hear the cheesiest pickup lines, that's exactly where she should go. And
0: for a 20 year old American, she has to be on the ball because these guys are isimo. is that a word? <laughs> where, where they, where you, the Italian
2: well, they, boys, they're, they're going to call her. They're isima. They're going to call her bellissima for sure. Yes, so, every every yes, other word yes, from an yeah. Italian boy
4: when he's
0: hustling an American girl is issimo. Right, Your that's a superlative of
4: every adjective. I will counsel appropriately. So,
0: I mean, I just think it's really exciting, Patty, when you've got a student and a child that's going to be heading off to a place like Rome. It's a beautiful opportunity to meet the local people and. In Europe, it's um, it really circles around after dark in the clubs and in in the enoteque and so on. Lots of dancing places, yeah. lots of fun to be had, and uh, Europeans know how to have a good time. And a, sort of a it can be a cultural lesson as well as just flat out fun.
3: Yeah, and lots of nice vibes. So it's
0: good. Uh, <laughs> Thank <both>. <laughs> okay, thanks, Patty, for your call.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking how Isimo Italy is. (laughs) And uh, when you think about traveling in Italy, I always think that there is just some general lifestyle choices you've got to make. You need to be patient. You need to be flexible. You need to go with the flow. Anywhere you go, you've got an opportunity to be out there for the passeggiata. And when I check into a hotel, first thing I ask is, where and when? When can I go walk with all the people and make the scene on the streets? It's, it's like cruising without cars. Susanna, when you're thinking of the passeggiata, it's a, I mean, we've talked about this many times on our show just because, to me, it's, it's the easiest way for an American tourist to feel the joy of life in Italy. Talk about the passeggiata, not in Rome, but just in a small town or wherever.
3: Well, you know, the passeggiata is uh, the base and the very basic of uh, our lifestyle. So everybody has a job, or the lucky ones uh, have one. But uh, it's important to keep also some free time, possibly every single day, and uh, try to do what everybody does, which means you finish to to work and you probably want to have an aperitivo with your friends uh, or even with your colleagues. So it's like a little break. You can have and you must have. The very typical passeggiata would be during uh, the weekend because, of course, people have more free time. The families finally reunite and they can have, spend more time. So it would be walking together. can be to have a coffee, to have an aperitivo. Ultimately, it's just walk for the sake of it. To enjoy, you know, to, be, to be together, and to be out.
0: And there's a lot that is built into Italian culture. The, the whole piazza idea goes back to ancient times. The yes. People gather in the square. The gathering point. And people don't want a big freezer, so they only have to go shopping every two weeks. They have a little tiny refrigerator, so they need to go to the market every morning. Every night they enjoy a little time before settling in at home to be out strolling with the But it's so nice to be with a bunch of
2: people who are walking and talking and not on their cell phones or sitting down with their neck over their cell phones, and they're actually
0: engaging with each other. And is that surviving in Italy? That is still
2: surviving in Italy, and especially during this passeggiata time where people are out to see and be seen. I love this Italian expression. They say, si pavoneggiano, which means they get all their peacock feathers out. And so it's Ah. like a little bit like if you partake, you're partaking in the theater. So, so think spr- of yourself like, on a stage. It's like peacocks walking yeah. around. I love that. Say that again in Italian. Si pavoneggiano. And that means literally? They get their, all, all their peacock
4: feathers out. Pensa a me a mi. Que stagia sola allora. Pensa a me a mi. senza parlare. Pensa a me a E lo pensiero se va.
0: There's lots more to show off about Italy just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves as Susanna and Nina take your calls at 877-333-7425. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. We'll hear what one American family discovered about how to eat well when they moved to a small town in Gascony in rural France. That's in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, tour guides Nina Bernardo and Susanna Paracchini are giving us an insider's look at life in Italy. We're learning what a first-time visitor can expect to be different from back home and about the traditions that bring people together in the streets and piazzas of Italian cities. I love that dimension of Italian and people are going, ah, bello or bella to each other, depending on if it's a boy looking at a girl or vice versa. But, of course, we've got in the headlines in the United States now a lot of discussion about respect between the genders. And uh, I think there's a lot in Italy that goes on that wouldn't be okay in the United States. You're both uh, women who uh, are out there on the streets who might feel like people are giving you too much attention or just looking for you to, you know, put out your peacock feathers. What was the take from Italy about this whole talk in the United States about sexual harassment, Nina?
2: I think definitely there are some cultural differences. Certainly they're starting to have a conversation in Italy as well. I think one of the first women to come out and and accuse Harvey Weinstein was an Italian actress. Ah. So they are definitely having this conversation. But I would also say that what is acceptable there that maybe is starting to be discussed more here and is still okay there is that men are much more direct and they are much more verbally and visually direct. So that shouldn't be offensive if men look at you, but be ready for them to look at you. And to be very verbally direct uh, and appreciative and so very complimentary. So
0: what's an example? How is a man verbally direct when you may be out on the street? They're going to absolutely
2: talk? comment on your appearance. So they're going to tell you you have beautiful eyes and they like your hair and your skin is so soft and they won't remember your name. So they're going to call you, you Bella. Mean a a the perfect time.
0: stranger will say your skin looks just so soft. They might. Susanna, what what else might they say?
3: Well, you know, they can also go to uh, heavier uh, topics and uh, parts of your body, but we have to take it for granted. So as I was a kid, I was a teenager and, of course, much skinnier and, uh, you know, probably looking better than today. I would uh, draw attention and me and everybody else. So you just grew up with the idea that you have to be able to be verbally like a fighter, you know, to fight
0: back. Stand up for your respect.
3: Absolutely. I so was... if
0: some guy is disrespectful to you, you get to call the, you get to say, that's okay, that's fun, I can play that game, or no, that's not right.
3: Absolutely. Well, it depends. You know, if you're funny, if you're ironic, if it's, uh, you do it with the, that special something. Uh, charm that m- some Italians may have. I take it, and actually I say even thank you. I mean, at my age you thank a lot more than before, but what I'm trying to say is that you have to have a certain sense of humor, but when it goes beyond a certain barrier, and of course, as Nina was saying, it really depends on the culture. For us, that barrier is a little bit beyond the American one. Yeah, We can take it, but we've been used to take that since early stage of our when, lives.
0: When, when I look at TV in Italy, it's kind of like bimbo TV. I mean, there's these older men, and then there's these well-built women just well, bouncing around on TV, and it's just silly conversation. Is that just sort of, that's just fun-loving, or is there any sense among women in Italy that this uh, is, I wouldn't this
2: call is that fun-loving. I would call that detrimental to society. But mm. what I would say to first-time travelers is, don't turn on the television.
0: Yeah. It's, it's just, <laughs> because, I mean, that's one thing that... That's not the impression I want it, you to come just away. It strikes me in Italy that when I look on the TV, it's flat-out disrespectful to women. I would say that absolutely it is.
3: Yes. And, you know, still a woman as a sexual object is still something that unfortunately is part of our culture. I don't agree. uh, But on the other hand, I don't want to be too strict on the opposite side. So, you know, um, a balance. It's a balance. It's a balance. And it depends so much on how they say what they say.
0: As a woman, do you feel respected in your work and on the streets in Italy?
3: Uh, Well, you know, I I think that as a woman, you have to work harder. You know, you have to be a stronger fighter, and I believe that we are not yet where I would like to be.
0: You need to do some work on that. I mean, Italian women are going to probably be inspired by American women.
3: Yes, I believe that it's already uh, like a world uh, movement.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Susanna Perrucchini and Nina Bernardo about A First Timer's Guide to Italy. Our phone number is 877 And Samantha's calling in Houston.
4: Yes, a question. Um, I have an upcoming trip to Italy. I'm going to be there for, oh gosh, about two and a half weeks. And I'm really looking forward to it. But I'm wondering about train tickets. Should I buy them ahead of time? Should I wait until I get there? I know that strikes are a thing that Italians deal with regularly. But as a first-timer to Italy, I I don't know how to approach this situation.
0: That's a good question. I go to Italy, too, and I often wonder, should I have my tickets in advance? Should I buy them as I go? Should I buy them all together at one stop in Italy?
2: They're so easy to buy online now that if I were you, if you have a a first destination, maybe get it before you go. But then, as you make your travel plans while you're there, it's so easy to go online, book it online. You don't even need to print anything out now. You get an email confirmation that you'll show at the train station, and then you can just board your train. And so that has a confirmation number. It has a confirmation number. Have your seat assignment because I'm assuming you'll be. It's your first time. You'll probably be going to bigger places. Mm -hmm. You'll be going with high speed trains. So what what site easy. do you go to? So to there are two incentives? sites you can go to. You can go to the state-subsidized train, which is Trenitalia, T-R-E-N-I-T-A-L-I-A dot I-T or dot com. Mm-hmm. You can do it in English, so you can change the language on the page. Oh, yeah. Or you can go to the private train company, which is Italo, I okay. T A L O, T R E N O.
0: And Samantha, I've done that, and I'm, I'm really slow with booking things online in Europe. And I you've got your credit card, you go through the prompts, click the Union Jack for English, and you'll have that uh, email with your proper code, and it's no problem at all in that. makes sense?
4: Great. I know that there's like a process to validate your ticket. How does that work if it's an electronic ticket?
2: So if you're on the high-speed train, you never need to validate a ticket because that ticket is no longer valid whether you ride that train or not. So it comes with a
0: reservation.
4: So it comes with a
2: reservation. And I think you mentioned strikes before. Um, Most often when there are strikes, the high-speed trains to the major destinations will still go anyway. Hmm. It's usually the regional trains that are affected. So it affects a lot of commuters and things like that.
4: Great. How far in advance do you recommend that I buy the tickets? Is there any sort of worry about them selling out or anything uh, like that?
2: No.
3: There are so many for the major
2: destinations. Unless you're traveling on a holiday, you shouldn't have any problems.
0: I like to buy my ticket, uh, you know, about when I arrive into town for the departure just to get that taken care of. But uh, it shouldn't be any problem. Thanks for your call, Samantha.
4: Thank you. Bye.
0: Tammy's calling from Windermere in Florida. Hi, Tammy.
4: Hi, Rick. Thank you so much for taking my call. I have a question. So I have the privilege of taking my mom on a trip uh, this year. She's a a young 73-year-old, and she's checking off a trip from her bucket list. She wants to do the Amalfi Coast, and then we're going to go to Croatia. And from what I can tell, you know, Sorrento is a good local place or a central place that we can get to everything we want to see. We're only at the Amalfi Coast for five days. She loves the water, anything to do with the water. She's not a big museum goer. She's not a big church goer. So I know she wants to see Pompeii. She loves history, but... I just would love to hear, you know, kind of what you guys, what are the local hidden treasures that Mm. you just go, you know, you can't miss this.
0: Well, from Sorrento, there's no hidden treasures, I would say.
4: (laughs) That's right. Sorrento is
0: very touristy. It's wonderful. I absolutely love it. The one city that we would stay longer, more nights in than any other city is Sorrento because it's such an amazing home base to travel out from there. A lot of people would would be more comfortable sleeping in Sorrento and then taking the boat or the train into Naples, which is more of a rough-and-tumble big city. From Sorrento, you're about half an hour from Pompeii. From Sorrento, you can get on the boat, and in half an hour, you're at Capri, the beautiful romantic island where you can spend a beautiful day. From Sorrento, you can take a, a trip down the dreamy Amalfi Coast, and Sorrento itself is just a delightful town. So you got one day in Naples, one day at Pompeii, one day at Capri, one day in Amalfi, and one day in Sorrento. There's five days. Now, if you're looking for something untouristy in there, don't. You're in the wrong spot to look for anything untouristy. (laughs) Uh, I I love all those places. Uh, What what time of year are you going?
4: Probably September it shouldn't it's, be too Unless you guys say I should, there's crowded. a better time I should be going.
0: You know, I love to hire a local guide, just the luxury of a local guide for a day. When I'm there, there's lots of hardworking guides, and then you'll get a sense of what are the crowds like, get local advice. But as long as you get an early start, you want to beat the cruise groups. That's what you want to do. A lot of cruise groups and a lot of tour buses with uh, Asian tours come in, and they all, when I was on Capri, they said, oh, we got to do this and that and this and that before the Korean groups come. And it's just everybody on Capri knows. The Americans come first, and then the Koreans come, and then after the the last boat back to Sorrento, the locals retake their town. So uh, get there early or be out late. uh, You should have a great time.
4: Okay, and like some, one of the things that I've done in the past when I took my daughter to Paris, we did a cooking class. And for me, that was amazing. It was not something that a typical tourist would do, but it really showed us a lot about the region and what we should be eating in those different areas. So that's kind of what I was looking for, some of those. You know, yeah, I know it's going to be touristy everywhere, but maybe there are certain things that we should do. Do you guys know know of any...
0: I know there's cooking classes in in Rome and in Florence and and so on. Is there one in the Amalfi Coast area? Have you heard of
3: Well, yes. One of the things that they organize among the different excursions is cooking classes. Because Americans, they do love cooking classes, especially in a place where nature is so generous. And it's
0: very trendy. Now, cooking classes and food tours. Food you know, tours, wherever yes. I go, I go to um, TripAdvisor and I look under things to do, and there's always new and hardworking, entrepreneur little uh, outfits that are doing uh, food tours. And, and personally, I just love a food tour. It costs about twice what a dinner would cost but you'll get dinner out of it and you'll visit six or eight little wonderful hole-in-the-wall artisanal places and you have a local guide and and a lot of friends. Nina?
2: Yeah, and the hotel is an excellent resource for Mm -hmm. that, especially in a place like Sorrento where they have all the contacts for people who do food tours and guides. So email your hotel and say, you know, these are the things I want to do. Can you give me a few suggestions of who I should book?
0: Hey, good luck, Tammy. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. It's Travel with Rick Steves and we're helping to turn your questions and concerns into a chance to enjoy Italy like the Italians do with the help of our tour guides, Susanna Paracchini and Nina Bernardo. Lois from Pontevedra Beach in Florida has emailed us, and Lois writes, We're planning a two-week trip to Italy and want to include a visit to the Cinque Terre. I hear the cruise ships dock in La Spezia now and can arrive en masse and overwhelm the, the little villages along the coast there. There's even talk of limiting visitors to the Cinque Terre. Are the crowds bad enough to warrant changing our plans? You know, Lois, I was just on a cruise ship landing in... La Spezia, and I noticed, to my sadness, half of the tour buses parked in front of the cruise ship, which have 3,000 tourists on them, were heading for Cinque Terre. It's a very popular thing for cruise ships, and cruise ships inundate the Cinque Terre with crowds, and I think it's a serious problem. If the cruise ships are in La Spezia, during the middle of the day, the Cinque Terre can be a real mess. But if you spend the night in the Cinque Terre, and be out early and enjoy it until 10 o'clock and then everybody on the cruise ships is heading home at 4 o'clock and you got 6 hours of of beautiful evening light you got lots of time to enjoy the Cinque Terre so I would not uh, stay away from the Cinque Terre but I would remind you during the middle of the day in season when the cruise ships are at La Spezia it can be a mess Nina and Susanna have you had any experience with the Cinque Terre and the crowds?
3: Well, yes. Uh, in fact, the Cinque Terre, uh, thanks to you as well, uh, Rick, became uh, like such a popular destination that we are facing that humongous amount of people. And of course, for those who don't know Cinque Terre, Cinque Terre, there are these five uh, little villages on a cliff. So it's uh, the space and uh, the possibility to accommodate as many people as they cannot do it. It's a beautiful countryside. Actually, it's uh, nature and uh, the shape of uh, men, the hardworking people, and they create this incredible combination. But uh, crowds. Gen- crowd Blame it
0: on Rick Steves and the cruise industry. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I,
0: quote, discovered it for American tourists when he I was did. a kid. And he there did. were no hotels there. And yes. there were certainly no crowds there. And now my just adorable little towns are, they're filled with boutique hotels, wonderful restaurants, and happy tourists. I mean, the locals are wealthy now. It used to be very poor tourists are tripping over each other to get there. So it's quite a touristed place, plus all the thousands and thousands of holiday goers from Genoa nearby, a massive city, come to the Cinque Terre for a little break. But as Susanna was saying, this is the uh, most rugged part of the Italian Riviera, five little villages near La Spezia, and it's just gorgeous, but it does like, you know, when everybody wants to go there. A lot of people get upset with me for uh, popularizing the Cinque Terre, and they wish they, I would have just kept it a secret and told them instead, you know. But uh, <laughs> we're all we're all in this together, <laughs> and uh, this is just fun to be able to design your itinerary so you can have the best possible trip when you're in a wonderful country like Italy. This is Travel with Rick Steves. we have been speaking with Nina Bernardo and Susanna Parrochini about their beautiful country, Italy. I've been going there all my adult life, and I just cannot exhaust that beautiful peninsula of what it has to offer. Of course, when we're planning an itinerary, we Americans have the shortest vacations in the rich world. We want to see everything. we got to be realistic. You've got Rome, Florence, and Venice. They're three hours apart by train, and they're the obvious cities to see. What if you're looking for beaches? Now, the Italian is going to go to these giant resorts where traffic jams and discos, and I've been to a few of them looking for some charm, and... I came home with nothing. I mean, via Reggio and
2: the Italian yeah Rimini. coastline has just been overdeveloped. But if you want to, you could go to Sardinia. Yes, and Sardinia that's what I was has thinking. some really unspoiled beaches, coves, rocky cliffs. That is the definitely the coastline to see.
0: Sardinia is part of Italy, right? And right, Corsica and is, part, is part, part of France. France. Right, and these are the two sizable the, islands. Right
2: in the Mediterranean. Right, so, so you Sardinia. could you could fly there
3: into sure. Olbia
0: or um, Cagliari, or which Cagliari. is the capital. So, uh, Suzanne, or take de- a ferry over. Describe a little bit more about Sardinia. Well, here.
3: Sardinia is very unique. And the fact that has been, they've been isolated make these people very unique. They have their own language, even though we call it uh, dialect, which is sardo. But let me tell you that I would not understand a single word if they speak in sardo. The central part of Sardinia is very mountainous and wild. Uh And in fact, some, uh, because I'm a big fan of movies, uh, some of the spaghetti western movies, they had some shot in some parts of Sardinia, in the central part, because it's uh, kind of mountainous. I was lucky to visit Seychelles and Sri Lanka and the kind of water and the nuances of the color that I've seen in the sea, it's even better. And not because I'm Italian. So you don't
0: need to fly all the way to the Seychelles you don't for have, paradise. No, You've got a, it in Sardinia. Of
3: course, you have different trees and plants, yeah. but the water, talking about the water, is yeah, absolutely deep. incredible.
0: Sardinia. Yes. And there's a local pride to the degree where they cling to their local dialect.
3: Oh, yes. Actually, I love
0: this as a historian and a fan of uh, modern European history, how when they created a United Italy uh, they famously said, we've created Italy, now we have to create Italians. The Italians. Italians.
3: We're still working on it. <laughs> you are still working on it,
0: and it's the uh, the land of a thousand bell towers. Yes. Meaning there's yes. countless communities that are countless. loyal to their bell tower. Yeah, to campanilismo, their we say. Campanilismo. campanilismo.
3: Yes. Their
2: regional loyalties are very, very strong, yeah.
0: I'd love to close just with a little bit of reminder to our travelers to... Learn a few key words when you're in Italy. Of course, we probably don't speak Italian fluently, but of anywhere in Europe, I think Italians are eager to communicate, and we can be creative, and and it does help to have a working vocabulary of just a handful of words. Uh, I love to be able to say complimenti. It's a beautiful thing. It's just if somebody does a good job, you compliment them. Complimenti. That helps me a lot. I love it. Some phrases just seem to be natural in that language. Porché no?
3: Why not? Why okay, not? No. You know, that's
0: sort of the Italian <laughs> spirit, isn't it? Why not? There's no yes. rule against it. <laughs> exactly. Porché no? Uh, when we're doing the beautiful passeggiata, you got to remember your suffixes, right? To not mix up the genders. Right. The genders, yes. right? I, if I'm admiring a woman, I don't want to say bello.
2: No, you want to say bella.
0: Bella. 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 For years, when I was a tour guide, <laughs> I would come into a, a little hotel and I, I would say. Uh, Scusi, io sono capogruppa, and you know I would run in, and you guys are laughing because you understand. I just said, "Excuse me, I'm a female tour guide, yeah. and I need help." So I should have said, "What capogruppo?" Capogruppo. Capo oh, So that little letter makes a huge one letter makes a huge difference. one letter uh, dopo delay after you. So there's a word that I can pull out and, and surprise my Italian who thinks I'm just a, a silly they'll think tourist. you speak
2: Italian if you pull that one out dopo delay
0: Posso guardare.
2: Who are you asking if you can if look I, at? <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: I'm stepping in
4: That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I look right
0: Posso guardare. Can I take a look? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> can saying I that a <laughs> in, a, in a shop. So you step <laughs> okay. into a shop. You're not, you're not going to buy anything. You just want to look around. Can you say that? Posso guardare.
3: Posso guardare. Yes, So that's absolutely. a good word
0: to know. Very, yes. very handy. Formidabile, is that it?
3: Formidabile. Yes. Formida.
0: That's formidable. What a yes. great way to say instead of just Wonderful. beautiful. Yes. Wonderful. <laughs> um, my wine, I like it full-bodied. Robusto. 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 Oh, I would have said corposo, but ro- also corposo. Yes, I like robusto. There's can a good example. you say that or am
3: I, using, now am I mixing no, up no, my no, adjectives? No, no, you, you did it well. Robusto, corposo. You can use both.
0: And both of you are molto gentile.
3: Grazie. Grazie.
0: And mille grazie and buon lavoro.
3: Grazie a te.
0: We were speaking and understanding Italian.
4: <laughs> Complimenti <laughs> to all of us. <laughs>
0: Our next stop takes us to a delicious slice of the rural southwest of France. Travel and food writer David Mackinich explains how he took his love for all things French to a whole new level when his family rented an old mill house on the edge of a small town in Gascony. It's Travel with Rick Steves. There's another south of France, one that doesn't have the tourist crowds of Provence or the glitz of the Côte d'Azur. It's called Gascony. To experience it firsthand, food writer David Mackinage convinced his family to spend eight months there. It's a mostly rural region of southwest France where a duck farm and vineyard and maybe a slow-moving tractor seem to lie around every bend in the road. Among the French, Gascony is famous for having some of the heartiest, tastiest food traditions in Europe. David Mackinac shares his Gascon adventures in his book, Duck Season, Eating, Drinking, and Other Misadventures in Gascony, France's Last Best Place. He joins us now to tell us how living in small-town Gascony taught him to rethink his role as a cook and how to approach food, wine, and life itself. David, what's so different about Gascony that it actually changed how you live, even after you returned home to Chicago?
1: I hardly know where to begin. It it is truly a magical place. I I would say, first and foremost, the pace of life, as is the case in much of rural France, is much slower than what I had been accustomed to, you know, living in a city of three million people. And we, as a family, had to learn quickly how to... Slow things down, kind of press pause, take more time with everything, uh, but especially cooking. The Gaskins enjoy long meals, uh, they enjoy hearty meals, and they take their time not just with cooking and eating, but really with every aspect of daily life.
0: So let's just take the, the dinner, for example, and then uh, what about the, uh, the time before the dinner, the, the aperitif?
1: Well, let's start with that, because every Gascon meal starts with that. The the aperitif, or they call it for short, apéro, is a sacred ritual all over France. But in Gascony, it takes on a a really ritualistic aspect. I've had cocktail hours that last for three hours Mm -hmm. in Gascony uh, before the meal even begins. That said, people don't get roaring drunk. They're always eating, they're talking, they're sipping usually wine, or uh, flock, which is an Armagnac-spiked wine-based aperitif. This was a ritual we really adopted wholeheartedly in my tiny family, mm. my wife and then kindergarten-age daughter, uh, who would usually have an orangina or a soda or a glass of sparkling water. And we made this part of our meal ritual, not just on weekends or when, when we had company, but every single day.
0: You know, it seems like the French are, are really adamant about creating a buffer between their work world and their home life. And uh, they have this sort of special time that's really dedicated to the the conviviality of their community or their family. And it's worked into their, they make time for it. They, They prioritize for it.
1: I've often said that the Gaskins consider eating and drinking the, the main focus of the day and work is just sort of a necessary interruption. Mm. And that really held true for us. Uh, admittedly, I was in Gascony to write a book about the cuisine and the wines of the region. So food was my focus. But by necessity – Meals became the organizing principle of our day, in large part because the markets were open in the morning, but then shut down at 12 o'clock sharp every day for two and sometimes even three hours so everyone could enjoy the sanctity of the lunch hour. So if you didn't have Mm -hmm. your provisioning and shopping done by noon, you are out of luck.
0: The sanctity of the lunch hour. You know, I've been working with my TV crew in France in particular, and, you know, if the sun's out and the light's good and, and we're getting stuff done, we just grab a sandwich and hardly stop. And... My French guide friends they just shake their heads and go, Oh you, you <laughs> barbarians, don't you know this is lunchtime? And Heresy. Is, yeah, yes. heresy, sanctity. You know, you've got to take that lunch break. And and it sounds like in Gascony, even the food conspires to make you slow down because you cook it slowly, don't you?
1: That's absolutely right. The Gascons favor slower and lower methods of cooking. Now, this was also an adjustment for me. Uh, I was a city guy. I favored high heat, quick cooking methods that didn't take a long time where you could mm. sear a piece of meat on a skillet or over a grill. Mm. And uh, they do that there. But the most beloved and traditional dishes are often cooked in a cocotte, which is a Dutch oven or an enameled cast iron mm-hmm. vessel. And they use cheaper but more flavorful cuts of meat that take a long time to tender into submission. Mm. And uh, so it took a while for me to, to kind of slow down and, and, and plan ahead. And frequently, a real traditional Gascon meal has to be begun a day or even two days before you eat it because the, the meat tastes better if it rests overnight in the fridge and is slowly heated mm-hmm. back up the next day.
0: You know, Gascony itself is almost requiring you to slow down if you're a traveler, because, uh, you know, Provence is sort of off of the beaten path because it's not served very well by the trains and the and the freeways, and Gascony even more so. Uh, it's a tiny Absolutely. little corner of France down in the southwest. Uh, Toulouse is the biggest city nearby, right?
1: That's right. Toulouse is, I would call it, the gateway to, mm. to Gascony, though it's not really in the traditional region of Gascony. If you look at a a map of France, You can kind of see all the roads and train lines veering away from this area that has fewer place names on the map. Mm -hmm. Um, It is not served by high-speed rail. There are no expressways going through it. Uh, So it's a little harder to get to, but you're rewarded when you get there.
0: Would you think there's a movement, David, among the local people to, uh, why don't we get a high-speed train connection, or do they think that's a blessing that helps them maintain their traditional quality of life?
1: It's funny you mention that because I I checked the headlines of La Dépêche du Midi, it's the regional newspaper out of Toulouse, and the front page news over the past week or two has been the possibility of getting a TGV line to Toulouse that would cut through Gascony. I don't think it's a done deal yet, but there's a big public debate going on as we speak about whether that's going to happen.
0: In many places around Europe, a lot of people who are the traditionalists and treasure their, their lifestyle they see the arrival of the freeway or the high speed train as uh, something that's going to threaten their way of life and they actually work against it
1: well it's funny that that strain of thinking goes back generations in gascony um mm-hmm. there's a there's a marvelous book written about rural france by eugen weber who documented what life was like outside the cities in france up to the turn of the 20th century and as early as the 16th century Gaskins were resisting having bridges and roads built through their region. Uh, they were very proud and believed that they had everything they needed to survive without access to neighboring provinces. They don't need no
0: stink in Paris. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. In, in fact, the, the very few Gaskins who made what was then the arduous journey up to the capital, up to Paris, and returned back to the native homeland of Gascony were forever referred to thereafter as Parisians.
0: Those who had even been up there and been exposed. To it. This is Travel yes. with Rick Steves. We're talking with David McAninch, and his book is Duck Season. David is a features editor at Chicago Magazine. You'll see his byline in other publications as well. We have a link to his Twitter account with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Now, David, we're talking about Gascony, and, and it's down there near Basque Country, near the Pyrenees in the southwest of France. Uh, I, I love the way you describe it in your book because it just... It just sounds like it's a fortress that stands apart from the the modern world, just sort of enjoyably frozen in time. Uh, the main the main city uh, is what twelve thousand people, and then you describe the little towns in the region as borgs that are five thousand people right. each, and then a bunch of hamlets which are just a, a church and and little more. Give us just a, a quick description of a of a region of France where that that you say the ducks outnumber the people seven to one. <laughs>
1: That's right. It It is not the least densely populated department of France, but it is the most agricultural of France's 101 administrative departments, uh, meaning more of its land is under cultivation yeah. than any other department. And that's the first thing you notice when you're there. Um, farming is the livelihood. It is technically the south of France, and people speak in that bouncy accent that we associate with the south of France, with Provence particularly. But unlike Provence, it's a much more lush landscape. There's not a great deal of traffic. There's virtually no mass tourism. And like you said a moment ago, it does feel a little bit like rural France frozen in time.
0: Now, you lived in a, a little village, and I just love the the way you describe your old mill house with a sparse kitchen and uh, Right there with the stream running through the mill and a stone bridge out the window. Can you give us a sense of what was your home with your family there for your stay in Gascony?
1: Well, let's put it this way. I'll put it charitably. It was an adjustment at first. Mm-hmm. You know, we we lived in a air conditioned condo in the city of Chicago and uh, moved into a two hundred year old stone walled textile mill that had been converted, but only just converted for for human habitation. Uh, It was actually a really picturesque place that we we fully and completely fell in love with over time. Uh, At first, there was a lot of mildew to deal with. There was a lot of insects to deal with. There was a lack of heat. Um, It's the first place I've ever lived, and maybe the only place I will ever live, where we really had to build a wood fire every night during the cold months to not (laughs) freeze. And, of course, that eventually became a ritual that we cherished.
0: Did you consider yourself on on some kind of a sabbatical. Was this a chance where you had an agenda where you wanted to recharge and be inspired and and be changed? Uh, And if that was your goal, how did you reach it?
1: Well, you know, as with so many of these big life projects you undertake, what you get out of it isn't always what you expect to get out of it. And obviously I went there to write a book and I was driven by an intense curiosity about the land, about the food, and about the people. And that curiosity was more than satisfied during our eight months there. But what we mm-hmm. came away with, and you hinted at this just a moment ago, Rick, is we ended up making family memories that, that have become kind of a touchstone for us. It was a truly a magical time for us. Uh, it was kind of us against the world a little bit at first. We didn't know many people when we got mm-hmm. there. And um, we did have more free time on our hands. Our daughter, who was seven at the time, didn't have a packed dance card of after-school activities. They didn't really have any to offer. Uh, She came home after school, and we spent time together as a family in our very chilly textile Mm -hmm. mill. We we cherish these memories now, and we we talk about it constantly.
0: You write that Gascony is more soulful than Provence or Côte d'Azur, more deeply French. How can one place be more deeply French? What did you mean by that?
1: You know, it's a bit of a paradox because Gascony is both deeply French and also a a bit of a country unto itself that Mm -hmm. had up until really the 20th century its own language and and folkways that were pretty cut off from the rest of France. And yet all the qualities and ideals that I associate with Frenchness from what we just call the sanctity of of the dinner and lunch hour to the notion of fraternité – to a sense of hospitality, all that felt amplified to me in Gascony. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's Mm -hmm. partly because it has remained such a rural place for so many generations that those traditions haven't been chipped away at as much as they have been in the cities. We're exploring Gascony in the rural
0: southwest of France with David Mackinich right now on Travel with Rick Steves. David, his wife and daughter spent nearly a year living in a 200-year-old millhouse in a small village to get acquainted with the region's cuisine and traditions. He writes about it in his book Duck Season: Eating, Drinking and Other Misadventures in Gascony, France's Last Best Place. Michael's listening in from Charlton, New York and joins us with a question for David at 877-333-7425. Hi Michael,
5: Yes. Um, actually, my wife and I, being educators in the New York State teaching system, we frequent uh, the Brittany region usually every other year or so for at least a month or, month or two, uh, actually enjoying a nice glass of Beaujolais Nouveau as we speak. And uh, just kind of curious, as we try and recreate some of the dishes that we create and eat with friends and family that live in Brittany, but struggle finding those very French flavors. Wine seems to be Nowadays, more or less, pretty easy to find, a good French wine, but the food Mm. is tough to recreate. So just are there any suggestions or simple tricks maybe that I'm missing?
1: You know, we faced the same challenge when we got home from Gascony, and I imagine we were probably in search of a slightly different set of ingredients. Uh, I imagine maybe you were trying to find the special kind of buckwheat they use in the crepes in, in Brittany. The big challenge for me, as you might guess, was finding the same kind of duck, that we got used to there. And I don't have a solution for that. You know, occasionally you'll find a farmer who's raising a breed of of livestock that you may have grown accustomed to over there, but it can be quite a an odyssey to find that hmm. farmer. I, I found that what we do is we try to satisfy ourselves. If we can't find the right ingredients, we at least try to reproduce the methods of cooking and the style of cooking, even if we have to use a slightly different cut of meat or a different kind of sea salt or a different seasoning. And we get pretty darn close to what we were eating in France. But I truly sympathize, brother. <laughs> it, is, mm-hmm. it is hard to taste these things over there and not be able to reproduce them.
0: A big part of it is also you can't find a 200-year-old stone mill with a whole. <laughs> Bridge out Very your window to, to eat it. I always find that also frustration. a problem. <laughs> you can't create the the ambiance of where you're eating it. You can certainly create the tempo though. That's probably a a major accomplishment just to be able to slow down and enjoy the conviviality that comes with with meal
5: time. Yes, absolutely, yes, it is, and it's, it's a great thing to try and recreate. And uh, I, I don't want to sound negative. Um, I it's think a the, tricky
0: thing. The the solution is just to physically travel there. I mean, it's you know for me. Soufflaki in Greece is just only, only right in Greece and uh, bruschetta is only right in Tuscany and there's something about it that you just can't... Right. It, it almost, Thomas Jefferson said travel makes a person wiser if less happy. I don't think he was talking about the cuisine <laughs> but he may have been. You come home, it's just not the same.
1: <laughs> there's a sense of loss, I agree. I agree. And isn't that why we travel? To, <laughs> That's to, why we, we, travel. We, we go and we that taste the thing we want to taste the most. It's the yeah. first thing we do when we get off the plane. Michael, thanks for your call.
5: No, thank you for having me, and, and all the best, and we love following the program.
0: Oh, take care. Thanks a lot. Happy travels. Okay. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Mackinage. His book is Duck Season. And, uh, David, you mentioned people in Gascony have the longest lives in France. Their diet yeah. seems to be pretty heavy, but they, they have
1: apparently a pretty good lifestyle. In spite of all that duck fat, how, come, how can they live so long? Well, that is what's commonly referred to as the Gascon paradox, which is really the paradox within the French paradox. And if you know you followed the news over the years, that's a subject that comes up from time to time. France, on the whole, has a lower incidence of heart disease than either Britain or the United States, and much of Western Europe. In fact, the Gascons are at the heart of that statistical anomaly. The region to which Gascony belongs enjoys the highest longevity at birth of any regional population of France and the lowest incidence of heart attacks. And when you go there and eat Gascon food for the first time, you are incredulous. You can't believe that that could possibly be true because the food on the face of it is very rich. But... You know, I'm sure
0: it has something to do with friends,
1: family, and lack of stress. I couldn't have said it better. I really, mm-hmm. I really think that um, those are the really the most profound influences on longevity. There, mm-hmm. uh, I would also say that uh, meals are rich but they're balanced, mm-hmm. um, and people eat to their satisfaction. But they don't eat in between meals. They don't drink to excess, mm-hmm. and it's a rural place without urban stress. And people tend to laugh a stay lot. Stay close to family. <laughs> do they laugh yeah. a lot? And they laugh a lot. They also sing a great deal. Sing That's a lot, not un- and u- laugh a lot. That's right. That's a good counterbalance
0: to the foie gras <laughs> and the cream-filled <laughs> tarts and all exactly. that duck confit. This is travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with David Meckinich and his book is Duck Season: Eating, Drinking, and Other Misadventures in Gascony, France's last best place. So, David, now you're back in Chicago. You went there with your family. You had your your sabbatical. You're back at your normal, you know, regular world. What part of Gascony have you taken home with you and incorporated into your everyday lifestyle that has made that trip to Gascony something that has been transformative for you and your family?
1: We really take more time with our meals, just as a family, even on a weeknight. Now, obviously, there are some nights where we just can't make it happen, and we end up in front of the TV. Uh, I'm not going to say that never happens. One thing that we are pretty religious about now is taking a little bit of time before we eat dinner to put the phones down, gather in the living room with a glass of wine and some sparkling water for Charlotte, our daughter, and make the transition from the workday to the evening, to our leisure time, to the meal. Uh, Sometimes it only lasts 15 minutes. Sometimes we're able to stretch it out for an hour. Uh, We'll read a magazine, read a book, we'll chat, and then we feel ready to sit down and have have a really gratifying evening meal.
0: And if you don't have time for that 15 or 20 minutes, it's probably an indication that you need to take that 15 or 20 minutes.
1: Exactly. It means we need to do a little bit of retooling in in our life to make room for that.
0: Wow. Now, if you just take that lesson home, uh, duck season has been a beautiful thing. David (laughs) Mackinant, thanks so much for sharing uh, your love of Gascony and uh, best wishes with your writing and with duck season.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks, Rick.
0: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get
1: website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to WBEZ in Chicago for studio help this week. Rick produces updated walking
4: tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find the latest ones in Rick's Audio Europe travel app.
0: There's a link at ricksteves.com radio.
4: Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.